Club. This is Justin Juliner, your host, and with me is Rob Stone. Say hello to the people. <laughs> <laughs> Wave to the people. Ahoy, ahoy. <laughs> Blow them kisses. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Rob and I have a uh, an affinity for Simpsons quotes, so those might be floating around here or there. You might have to look them up if you're not familiar, but we have... That's that's a big part of our herp trips is Simpsons quotes. So it's it's plagued Derek a little bit, but uh, it's been fun for us anyway. <laughs> and and uh, Owen gets into it as well. He's he's a big Simpsons fan as well. Yeah, Owen loves it too. Yeah, for sure. When he's there, he's been ditching out on us. Yeah, all too all too uh, <laughs> infrequent. Yeah. 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 I'm not going, but don't find anything cool without me. <laughs> uh, good old. <laughs> Uh, well Well, he won't uh, listen so we're good yeah 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 that's true any uh any snow in your area or you guys is kind of wimpy as we are when it comes to the snow i think we got a little bit on the 23rd but it's been pretty weak uh snow wise since then we've gotten a couple days so on christmas eve and then on Tuesday, we got some as well. Okay. Yeah, we got a little so Maybe a little bit more. Third. Yeah. Well, I, I heard it was supposed to be as good a, a snow year this year as it was last year. So, I mean, it's not great for the shoveling side of things, but it was great for the herping in some ways, I guess. You know, there's, there's maybe some uh, yeah. species that come out a little better when it isn't so wet. But we, I guess we'll see. <laughs> We'll see, for sure. Well, did you have a good Christmas? Yeah, pretty uneventful, which is good. How about you guys? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was uh, not bad at all. Um, Picked up a uh, one of the battery-powered Brad guns so I can assemble uh, cages a little easier without having to use a compressor. Um, It's pretty sweet, so I'm pretty stoked. I love tools. That's awesome. I'm a tool geek, I guess, but yeah, my dad got me into the Milwaukee tools that are the battery powered ones. And that's been a, a game changer in a lot of ways. It's really fun to work with uh, the battery powered tools, but in, in some aspects when they run out, that's not as fun. <laughs> but I guess <laughs> I got to wait a little bit for sure. Yep. Yeah. These days I've got probably backups that have cords too. So it shouldn't, shouldn't be the end of the world, but yeah, it's fun. Fun stuff. Good to spend time with family and uh, um, see, you know, the nieces and nephews, all that good stuff. So both our, my parents and Heidi's parents only live about an hour away, so it's not too far. So we usually go to both uh, the parents' houses on Christmas and visit with them. So that's nice time. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Really good. Yeah. Now it's the uh, kind of the between Christmas and New Year's, should we go to work? Do we need to go to work? Is anybody at work? <laughs> it's kind of, so it's been kind of nice and quiet. We watched a few movies, which has been kind of cool. Watched Blue Beetle today. That was a, that was a great show. <laughs> I enjoyed it thoroughly. But uh, the, I don't know if you watched uh, Cobra Kai, but. Um, oh, okay. The, yeah, the, sure. The main kid. Yeah. He, He's uh, Blue Beetle, so that was fun to see him in another role. He's he just a oh, likable okay. character. So that was a cool show. Yeah. 
But other than that, we've just been kind of lazy. As ever, I don't know about what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you always are other informing me, so quote. I love it. No, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. It's a, Beyond that. It's a fun, fun family movie. So, <laughs> yeah. And then just kind of pairing up stuff and keeping the cooling going. Uh, been, uh, it's kind of the slow season, so not a, too much to report on the herp scene or and for sure not in uh, herping, so it's just kind of that low season. But try to keep excited about the spring. <laughs> you let that motivate me to to make it through the long winters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, although I will say that on Instagram lately, so part of it, right, part of what we're seeing is everyone, and I need to join this a little bit more, going through photos from the past year that I hadn't gotten to previously, and then, uh, so it's clear what those ones are. The other part of it is uh, people going to Thailand and um, DNT and stuff like that. Seeing those photos is, uh, yeah, that it's, I think it's sort of in the same way, right, as the Australian python breeders, right, who are yep. getting their eggs at the opposite time of uh, people like yourself, where it's mm-hmm. um, either motivating or demotivating to see the success, of, uh, success and failures that other people are having. I, I would like to do a, a herp trip over to the to Australia in like January or February, kind of the slower time of year, and um, get over while it's kind of their the heat of their season. Although you know, you never know if it's. I, I did have somebody tell me that like um, Central Australia just is go. It just goes off in like January. There's like just geckos is you know, thick on the road. You, you almost can't drive down the road. You, you almost have to walk because there's so many geckos on the road. <laughs> At least that's how it was sold to me. He's like, why are you here in October? <laughs> you should have come in January. You know, that kind of fun little helpful comment. <laughs> <laughs> Only told in person in October. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. So uh, I might have to make it over there sometime, but uh, yeah, we'll see. I guess my uh, 50th trip is going to be in March. So that's kind of the fall all type season so right a little bit closer yeah we we could cheat a little and do it in february or january or something too and consider it the same same trip but i'll have to see how things work out i think when dan vermilio was on npr he had mentioned late january is a good time for wa as well Mm -hmm. yeah i don't i don't know if there's a bad time for WA except maybe their winter, but <laughs> I've had had some good trips out there that have, you know, kind of the whirlwind cross country trips, but yeah. we found a lot of good stuff and it's been really successful trips both in October and November. But yeah, January, February would be awesome to be there too. Um and uh the the um Frank Colachico and Hussam. Yeah, that was a little before yeah. us. So that was what February, right? I, I think, think they're in March. Um, I think it was March, and that's kind of what made me think February into go. like yeah, the yeah. last week, the the end of the first week of March or something like mm-hmm. that. It was right. Yeah, they got uh, in and out right before yeah, right <laughs> everything before COVID hit. Yeah, yeah, but they they had a killer yeah. trip. Found all sorts of good stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I kind of like the idea of going over at different times and seeing, you know, different seasons and kind of getting to experience different conditions, you know, that kind of thing. I guess January, February, March is going to be much hotter than October, November, but uh, 
probably more road cruising activity than than kind of the springtime. You know, there's less uh, stuff out on the road. Yeah, I don't know if I'd like that with all the yeah, uh, right. nothing to see during the day. You, yeah, you know me. We sure. can eventually do a hiking versus, uh, yeah. you know, I know you've road done that, cruising. but not with yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> we do need to cover some, some old ground again, I think. You know, you've got some good uh, ideas. Eventually. We won't start those. there, but we'll yeah. we'll get there. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, well, and I, I did although see some. The oh, crazy spot, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say that I did see on the other thing on Instagram was the, that uh, Cyclone had come through above Cairns, like in the Cooktown area, into southern part of Queensland, and that was that flooding looked pretty crazy. Mm, I didn't did you see, that? see that. No, I I haven't been on social media much lately, so I'm kind of missing a lot of these things. <laughs> but. Uh... Sometimes well, that's maybe for the best, on, at least on the post yeah. that it triggered it to me. But uh, <laughs> yeah. I think there was a dead wallaby or something. But uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of. I think I did. That looks like something for sure. Yeah, yeah, not not great, but uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of what happens in those areas. I know uh, when I was in Ipswich, uh, Troy Kuligowski took me, you know, kind of on a tour of the of Ipswich and showed me like this mall was underwater. You know, there were sharks swimming through the, through Hmm. the doors of this mall or, you know, pretty crazy. Like there were, they've, they're, they're no stranger to pretty good, good flooding there. So, you know, I, I guess they're prepared for that or, or maybe not to that extent where their stores are underwater, but you know, that's probably once, once in a decade or, or hopefully longer storm, but yeah. Speaking of that, did you see the story? Maybe I don't know. It was sort of you know international, national to international news. Maybe three, two or three months ago, where I guess at a golf course uh, in suburban Brisbane, that some flood a decade ago had trapped eight or nine male bull sharks in a golf course pond. Oh yeah! Imagine that, right? So then you're you're off the shore, and, and so the the story was it was all these males, and the last one had died. I think is what it caused the sort of the international aspect to the the story or whatever. But I'm just thinking like, okay, we're in Florida, you'd be used to an alligator, but the notion that you know if we were on a golf, it, it just makes you look at every body body of water a little bit differently. <laughs> the notion right. about there's actually eight or nine. Yeah saltwater shark you know brackish to saltwater sharks in here oh my gosh <laughs> yeah you don't don't probably without a ton ball. of food resources so they might be a little feisty <laughs> yeah yeah 100 <laughs> yeah yeah that's crazy yeah some some uh some of those nature i guess that's what results in things colonizing islands and you know those crazy uh catastrophic weather yeah. events can really change the landscape or or you know alter things to some extent but Nature is powerful, that's for sure. Well, um, this made me, uh, I think I had a couple of dreams about that, or <laughs> where you go, oh, maybe take a close look at the water. Yeah, yeah, right. I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, when, when we were in Australia, we were going up to the Iron Range and we crossed the river. And I, I think I've told the story where I almost got trapped in the river well on the way back the guys decided to go for a little swim and so rico is out there snorkeling looking for turtles and like i'm thinking is this 
the wisest thing we could be doing, you know, but the water was nice and clear. I guess you could see a crocodile coming, but I'm like, I don't know about this. I, I did. I, I think I didn't get in the, the water at that time. Maybe I did. I can't remember. I don't know. I, I sometimes probably take a little too many risks, but <laughs> you know, the other guys are doing it so I can swim faster than them. They will be bait. <laughs> I don't know. Right. As long as you're faster than Nick, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you, you wonder about those uh, choices sometimes, but it was uh, interesting anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Although I think that would be a, a dour note for a trip, you know, as, yeah, as much as it's sure. like, well, you know, it wasn't you, but the, I think we saw that in the yeah. Southern California venture where it was like, you know what? Like, I, I think it's best if every, you know, we don't need to mark which day this job and how about yeah. we all, all return safe. Let's all stay alive. <laughs> yeah. That would, that would definitely uh, put an end to the trip and put a damper on, you know, future trips for sure. So yeah, <laughs> oh, that was, for sure. that was traumatic in Southern California, oh, man. Well, on that note, we ready to fight? No, not uh, pleasant. <laughs> pleasant, pleasant memory. Let's go. Yeah. Start fighting. Um, let's see. So today's topic, I, I was uh, listening to uh, Jay Summers on Project Herpeticulture, and he was talking about, you know, some of the different imported species and how, you know, they're just imported and they slowly die and, and, they, they nobody has success with them and they're cheap and so you know it's like kind of a throwaway pet almost and and so i i thought about that you know is there are there species that just really shouldn't be imported and uh you know it, whether they import them or not should we as the reptile consumers be purchasing these animals um, so, you know, it's kind of a complex issue with you know, multifaceted things to consider, but I thought it would be a good, good topic for, for discussion. So that's what we're going to debate today. And, you know, whether or not there should be species that just, we just shouldn't support their import by, by, uh, not buying them and, and, uh, sending a message, I guess, to the importers that these are not things that we want to work with. So, that's what we'll be talking about, kind of the yay or yeah. yes, there should be species that we don't mess with or no. I think, you know, all species should, we should try to to work with. So does that sound like a reasonable topic? hundred <laughs> percent. All right. Well, Statsig, I go. should say. <laughs> yeah, Statsig. Let's go ahead and flip the coin um, if you want to give it a call. Uh, heads. It is tails. <laughs> I guess I, I have. Didn't I win the last one? I think I, I can't remember. But yeah. <laughs> um. So let's see. I I, I don't think, even know. I I think I'll go with the uh, side that um. No, we should, you know, work with the species, um, especially if they're imported in numbers. Um, so I'll start with that that idea, I guess, and you'll take the no side there should you know we shouldn't work with some of these there are species that we should not okay. work with <laughs> if that yeah if that's clear sure. as mud <laughs> okay and and i'll let you start <laughs> i'm with you okay <laughs> okay yeah fair enough so uh really to me right so there's two different aspects that gets us to 
potentially saying we shouldn't work with these. And the first would be if there's just a total vacuum of information mm-hmm. where we're saying we actually don't know what their natural history looks. And this is probably relatively uh, few and far between in terms of either we have uh, animals from either that biome um, or a similar one that we could apply and or there's natural history, there's uh, literature, right, that speaks to that particular form, either the species description or a description of something else in the same genus from a similar habitat, um, or things that we fully understand what they require, and it just becomes a question of whether we're willing to do it or not, right? Mm -hmm. And I have experienced sort of dealing with some of those things. There are some that are even further afield than what I'm used to. Um, But yeah, the initial point would be Kind of those, to me, are the two uh, bases that we'd be looking at here of saying either we genuinely have a vacuum of information, which is probably the more rare of the two instances, and it's probably something that will get filled, right, either by uh, if they do become available in the trade uh, manipulation, saying, okay, does this what works and what doesn't, sort of the historical basis for everything in captivity in some way, right, if we're talking about, oh, in the 1920s and 30s, they tried feeding bull snakes chicken eggs, and that was deemed, quote, the normative item. And if you handed me a bull snake today, that's not where I would start for sure. But uh, evidently it worked for some, you know, and all this. Um, I was actually reading it, it was a the Staten Island Zoo from the early 60s. I got a couple uh, – Caulfield had written a couple articles for the magazine, the zoo's magazine, um, and I was reading through those today. And one of them was detailing exactly that of – uh, his it was one of his maybe his first snake when he was a teenager. Uh, he had a relative who was living here in Colorado and had sent him a bull snake, a five or six foot bull snake, and it went into an, a winter frost. But he was concerned about hibernate. Oh, snakes don't do well if you keep them solidly, you know, between fifty and sixty, which obviously is kind of crazy. Reading about how where we're at now and sort of our perceptions on these things. But uh, he was keeping it warm, but it wouldn't feed because it had come, you know, based on its sort of inherent seasonality, whether that's epigenetics or actually the way it had been sort of uh, conditioned for that year or whatever. Um, but then come the spring, it actually wound up eating chicken eggs for him. And he found, oh, well, they it always did better when I was feeding them the sort of farm fresh. Presumably, he was presuming, well, they smelled more like it, but I actually liked ones that were coming out of the fridge, you know, on a hot summer day. It, it actually had a preferential consumption of cold eggs as opposed to how to, you know, room temperature eggs or what, whatever, yeah. ton there. Um, but, you know, so that's sort of the, the first thing, right, where we're filling, we'd be able to fill it in um, just by applying sort of standard techniques and seeing do any of these work. Um, yeah. The other that I think is the greater percentage of situations is going to be, oh, it turns out they eat sleeping anoles, meaning mm-hmm. it. Yeah can distinguish by literally it's watching it breathe and say it's waiting for nightfall for the diurnal anole to fall asleep. So it needs to be a live anole. It's literally moving for Bob Henderson talked about Grenadensis in uh, his Neotropical Tree Boas book and that they would move. I forget what the rate was. It was something like they would progress forward an inch every 15 minutes as he's sitting there watching them, as they're watching this anole, making sure it remains asleep because they're that uncoordinated or a lack confidence in their ability to strike and feed or whatever it is. So they're literally watching it breathe, uh, watching sleep breathing in this and all, and then they eventually get within an inch and a half or something and go for it. Um, That's obviously not the same thing as tossing something, a frozen thawed pan, 
Yeah. Right. If we're talking yeah. something that's yeah. so ingrained to eat, yeah. not just a lizard, but a live lizard that is asleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so obviously the, uh, the standard of care or not even standard of care, but the sort of to reach that baseline, the amount of work that would go into SIPA is hugely uh, divergent between that and a, now if you gave me a bull set, yeah, that thing's most likely to eat almost anything that you would offer yeah. it, which, which made the cocktail bit all the, all the more interesting. So I've said a ton there, not necessarily a bunch of jumping off points for you. Take it where you will. <laughs> no, I think I think there are some uh, good good places to start for sure there. And and I, you know, I do think that uh, we do rely on old things that have been tried before. And just, you know, if somebody like Caulfield can't get it to work, who am I to get it to work? You know, and so we just kind of give up before we even try. And, um, you know, I think. I, green trees are a nice example of that it, you know back in the day everybody thought oh they're green they hide in the leaves to eat birds that's what they eat you know and and until we got the studies in the what the 90s and and early 2000s on their natural history um then we found out no these are they're primarily eating mammals and so you know oh well we can provide mammals that's that's easy and and then the other part of that is they don't feed very frequently okay well let's provide less mammals you know and then maybe they won't die of obesity or hang their tails all the time or that kind of thing oh they come from this area well you know back in the day we didn't necessarily have reliable weather stations or they weren't placed very many places and so we had to kind of infer but and and maybe it was difficult to travel to the areas where they live and some places still are difficult to travel you know like new guinea it's very difficult and and potentially dangerous to travel there and so um but you know i've been to the iron range i felt what it felt like in their habitat and you know granted that was only a, a week or two out of the whole season so but you know there's people that go up there and study and record and and those kind of things so we have more information now than we did then now you you know you did mention there is a kind of there isn't a lot of information for some species but their relatives or similar species or species that have uh convergent evolution you know those kind of things can maybe give us clues and hints um other things uh i i well let's see what else did i want to hit on there the i guess the information um we live in the information age. Also, uh, the the conditions that the animals are in are much different these days. And and I do think that um, far less are imported. You know, there are far less importers now and there's far, far less countries that allow export. And so, you know, that's kind of fading away for either good or bad. I mean, you know, you can look at it like, you know, back in the day, they were just importing thousands of animals and they'd hold them at a collector's place and basically starve them to death and then ship them out. And then the people, the importers would get them and basically just try to flip them before they died. And then the pet stores get them and the pet stores have these half dead animals sitting in glass tanks, you know? And I think that model is, is, you know, slowly fading away. There are still some bad examples out there that have, you know, a trough full of green iguanas or something that are, you know, emaciated or not doing great or full of mites, you know, those kind of things. And those things do, do still happen, but I think that's becoming less, uh, less and less as, as we, um, 
get better with different species. And I, I think one of the, at least, you know, one of the best examples of our time is the ball python. You know, back in the day, it was considered a garbage export that nobody could get to eat. They they failed to thrive. They didn't do well in captivity. Nobody wanted to mess with them. They were just trash animals. And now they are the most popular python in the world and uh, have all these wonderful color and pattern flavors, you know, to choose from. So um, I guess, again, for better or worse, they've become the, the mainstay of the reptile industry, uh, ball pythons and and their their associated pattern and color mutations. So, um, you know, if we would have just gone on the notion that, no, you know, these are garbage snakes, we shouldn't mess with them. But, you know, there's a bunch of folks that said, no, I really like these. I want to crack the code. I want to figure these things out. And they figured out how to breed them. And the captive bred offspring did much better in captivity. And they weren't emaciated and sickly and <laughs> parasitized or whatever. And so they they fared much much better, you know, that first generation of captive offspring. Now they're the probably the easiest snake to breed in, easiest python to breed in captivity to some extent. So um, that's, uh, I guess that's where I'd, I'd go is, you know, if we, if you, if somebody wants to put in the effort, if somebody comes along and says, I want to champion this species because they're that cool to me, I don't want to follow in the path that everybody else has followed in. I'm going to try this species and make it work. I think there's probably a good chance you can do it with, you know, grit and determination. And maybe I'll get into that more later, but I've said enough for now. So go ahead and take it from there. Yeah, so I, I do agree that uh, the notion of a champion of the species is really a big deal, right? And that there's it's not only the champion of the species, but it's the, at some point that it's a champion, but then who also gains followers along the way, right? It's one thing for one person to be the expert who's invested and interested in a thing, but they also need to have a willingness to give a sales pitch on that, whether that's describing their care or what they're doing or putting offspring out there or probably both of those things, especially in coordination if, hey, maybe for whatever reason you don't even want to get it from me. You want it to be the cheaper import, but I'm applying my technique or whatever. I do think that that makes a ton of sense. Um, and certainly ball python, uh, you're, uh, I completely agree that the sort of image of that species as a captive animal has totally turned in the 40, you know, 40 or 45 years, the last 40 or 45 years, right? Where it's gone from an, a narrower window within that time, but talking about when commonly available and sort of creating that image of being difficult to manage, difficult to get to eat, difficult to get to reproduce, reproducing them at all as a big deal to now, as you say, probably the easiest python to breed in captivity. Uh, you know, well, I guess outside Australia. I'm sure in Australia, if you had one, it'd be pretty cool. Um, the uh, the thing that jumped to mind when you talked about that, right, is that a uh, a species that was brought in in that same way in those little it occurs. I think its range is more broad, but it occurs within that same natural range. The Calabar burrowing python, um, what is it, Calabria reinhardi? I think is right. Um, so those are nest, a nest rating fossorial species that are um, really cool, right? In the sense, mm -hmm. I pers my personal predilection is for anything sort of the randomness of pattern, right? So if you're talking about something that's a solid, oh, dark brown to purple, 
and then with or- vibrant orange spots just sort of yeah. as individual scales throughout its pattern and this sort of stuff. So a really cool-looking thing that also notoriously didn't do well. And while it's, I would say they're doing a little bit better now in the sense of they are, uh, despite being, quote, the burrowing python, one of two burrowing pythons with Loxosimus, uh in Mexico as well. <laughs> not not a python at all, uh, but they are <laughs> yeah. egg-laying, um, yeah. Yeah. which is um, – Get, gets us into that framework. Um, they, you know, there are some of those that I know uh, underground. Uh, no, not underground. The uh, Virginia outfit, Outback. Um, because when they're getting these shipments to ball pythons and things, they're getting them that are then these scalabar burrowing pythons that are laying eggs and they're hatching them out and selling captive hatch. And I have to assume that some of those are doing better. And especially, so there we go, right? There's two species that are kind of coming in the same way. All pythons, because they had mutations and the interest and all this stuff has really taken off. And they're probably, if you just looked at them and said, which is more of a generalist python? And if you applied sort of the standard python husbandry, which will do better, it would be a ball python. Um, but uh, whereas uh, calabars, <coughs> excuse me, with the sort of fossorial nestrator, uh, what is the, what's the ball python? trope right is that you got to feed them medium rats and nothing but sort of small to medium rats and nothing but those by the the bushel full um <laughs> i do i would maybe this can be a jumping off point for later right but the the captive predilection to say well one medium rat is cheaper than 10 uh fuzzy rats well there's probably going to be you know what what do people want to do they want to both from their the pecuniary both the money uh, of saying, well, it's it's cheaper to actually just feed this one, despite not being cheap. It, it well, they used to be two two fifty, and I'm sure now they're who knows how much, right? But mm-hmm. um, versus saying, oh, well, I I have to stand there and feed out ten of these items that actually then that would rack up to eight dollars or whatever, mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason, that quite possibly being one of them, uh, mm-hmm. those haven't taken off in quite the same way, and so maybe that's an illustration of saying, okay. When we're talking about things that then fit into a known or established paradigm or conveniently line up with what people want to do based on their time and finances and the way they want to set stuff up and all this stuff anyway, um, those ones it worked. But those are the two things from the same place that were in the same spot and only one of them is taken off. And it, it could be the morphs for sure, but I would say that those, ha- those captive husbandry aspects aren't uh, negligible either. Sure, yeah. And and I, I agree. I mean, I think um, – Diet can be probably the biggest hurdle to overcome. Um, I mean, we have a whole industry within herpetoculture that cir- circles around a particular group of geckos and their dietary predilections, you know, trying to match what, what they would eat in the wild in, in a powder form. And I mean, that revolutionized and made them, you know, kind of on par with ball pythons in in, in some sense. They're very easy to breed and keep. And for, for all intents and purposes, um, crested geckos were extinct to our knowledge. You know, no, we thought they were not in, you know, not existing anymore. And, and until somebody went out and found some and, and brought some back. And then they, they have become probably the biggest pet gecko in, in the world, uh, maybe second to leopard geckos, but rapidly overtaking them if they haven't already, you know? And so, um, if you, again, if you're willing to go that distance, you can probably get something that they will take or that they will thrive on. 
Um, I mean, obviously there's, there's some exceptions, you know, like, uh, maybe snakes that are, that are, that specifically feed on blind snakes or something. That was, that was one thing I, I, I do reference this to the, the O'Shea snake book of snakes, where I was looking through this thing thinking, man, I thought I knew reptiles and here are all these species I've never heard of. And Ooh, that would be cool to keep. What does it eat? Oh, blind snakes, you know, oh, well, that's going to be a challenge. And I mean, they, they have some workarounds. I've seen that, you know, coral snakes are given kind of a, a liquid diet that they syringe down their throat and, you know, basically kind of keep them alive to milk them in, in a venom production thing. So, I mean, it's possible that you could do that and, and keep them going, but that's not the ideal scenario. I don't know if anybody wants to keep a reptile that, that has to be tube fed, you know, once a week or something. So I, I do think we, we, that's part of keeping reptiles that keepers enjoy is the feeding aspect. And that's why a lot of animals are obese because we like to watch them feed, you know? And so that's, that's, uh, an interaction that we can have with our reptile. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that can be very difficult for some species. So, but you know, uh, I think there's a, and so we try to fit them in, we try to pigeonhole them into these boxes. Like, okay, I can afford a, a medium rat. So therefore I have a Calabar burrowing Python who I'm going to give a medium rat. And if he doesn't take it, then, Oh, they just suck. You know, they're, they're impossible to keep. And, you know, we, we need to uh, not, not mess with these things. They're, they're just too difficult because we don't want to provide them with an, a nest of, of smaller rodents. You know, that's just kind of, I chalk that up to laziness or, or just trying to fit a square, you know, peg in a round hole or whatever, however the saying goes. Um, but I mean, people are having success with, uh, rubber boas, which are essentially the same idea, you know, kind of a fossorial snake that raids mammal nests and, and people are breeding those and having success with those and they're becoming, or they are very popular in the hobby and going for, you know, pretty good dollars is, is from what I've heard. So, um, but you just have to work around and, and again, this goes back to knowing the natural history of the animal. If you know their natural history and you replicate, you know, the important aspects of their natural history, you can usually do okay with them. Um, and I, I guess, I'll, you know, maybe I'll just kind of keep the comments there to the dietary preferences. There's, there's sources. I, I kept uh, horn lizards a few years back and, and uh, I, I did really well with them until it came to brumation and then I failed, but uh, they, they were thriving and doing really well, um, in, in a captive setting. And it was because there was a commercial source of ants. You can buy harvester ants and just keep them in the fridge. They stay kind of dormant. And then you pull them out and throw a few in there and they start moving around as they warm up. Lizards eat them, you know, and you're giving them the natural prey. So there, you know, there are some, some options for that, you know, maybe some of the, um, different food markets that have some, you know, different, I think Owen buys what different fish and stuff or, or eels or things, you know, like that, that maybe certain snakes are, are, uh, have, have a preference for, and you can buy those at some markets or, or online or things like that. So our options for those are, are wider than they have been in the past. And, and, and maybe, you know, sharing notes with people. I think that's the other side of that is when we do fail, we don't really publish. And this is the same for science. You know, if you 
if a study fails, you don't publish those results. You know, it's, it just, nobody wants to read about something that didn't work. You know, you only want to hear about the, the stuff that worked or the new discoveries. And so similar with that is, is when we fail with a species, we don't say, here's what I did. And I failed miserably. You know, we, we just say, oh, they're a crappy species or they're too hard or they're too difficult. So don't bother with them. And so I think that might be part of it too, either trying to get them to fit into the, the, minimum, you know, the minimal box that we have outlined in herpticulture, you know, if you keep a snake, feed it a mouse or a rat, those are your two options, you know, laboratory mouse, laboratory rat. But, you know, now we've got, at least in some states, you know, soft-furred rats and, and different uh, gerbils or hamsters or whatever, you know, we can try different options there, uh, both juvenile or adult stage or, you know, all sorts of things. So there's ways to, to make it work. We just have to put in the effort, put in the work and, and, and there is some benefit of publishing your negative results, I guess, in herpticulture. What, what is it, you know, what does it cost you? Maybe a, a web page or something, you know, a, a link on your web page or something. So anyway, I, I've rambled enough. You can take it. Yeah. So that, the, the very last bit I have, Plenty out of what you said, but that very last bit reminded me of a funny story. So when I was, this is probably a dozen years ago or so, a dozen to maybe uh, time goes by, 15 years ago, something like that, I was working at a liquor store and a guy there uh, said, oh, I have a pet ball python that I can't get to eat. And at that time I had African softwood rats. And uh I said, oh, well, just try this. You know, I just gave him one and said, hey, try this. He, it hadn't eaten for six or seven months. And, uh, yeah, you know, the classic, like, it made it literally drops it in and it doesn't even make it halfway to the floor before the thing that hasn't eaten or shown any interest in feeding for six or seven months nails the hell out of it and eats it. And he said, I, I definitely need a lot more of these things. And I was like, this is right before I was moving and all this stuff. But, yeah, it was a funny you know, a, a classic, exactly to your point of like, that was something where, okay, there was a captive challenge, but we had developed enough to develop the infrastructure to actually mitigate that challenge. Uh, but it was just the prototype scenario of this was in the, you know, single digit 2000s, but it was the same problem from the 1980s, you know, a 25 year problem. But now, actually, there was an easy – he wasn't aware of the answer, but there was an easy answer that there was an infrastructure to support that could actually resolve the whole challenge itself. Um, so that that was really uh, uh, educational. You know, it was really clear to me from that of like, oh, okay, this is, this is a whole different thing. And to your point, really, in terms of diet, be it, uh, as you said, a crested gecko diet, I totally agree with what you said, where – even versus leopard geckos, right? In the 90s, leopard geckos were the thing, but that's fundamentally, you got to feed them bugs. And now, while crest, most crested geckos would take a bug and might benefit from it from a uh, micro and macro nutritional level and all these things, they will do fine. They they will eat even the dry food, like not even mixed into a wet slit. They will eat the yeah. stuff dry, yeah. like, you know, fundamentally and, and do okay. Like that, that's literally what we're talking about, where this is something that, you know, but again, that gradations of care, right? On the bare minimum standard, they'll eat this dry powder and then obviously need to be uh, hydrated, right? Associated with doing that. But um, versus they overtook very 
as you say, in a decade to, you know, 10 to 15 years, totally lapped leopard geckos because for an average person, right, the ability to keep a powdered diet in the fridge that then presumably they're mixing with water and adding on an every other day basis or whatever to the enclosure is a whole different thing than having live crickets. Uh, there was a, uh, I think there was a recent TikTok video where someone presumably unfamiliar with this ordered a box of 500 or 1,000 crickets or whatever that my wife is showing me. And uh, my, and he opened the box and he didn't do so in a, you know, trash can with tape around the lid or whatever, where it's like, yeah, I saw that instantly and was like, okay, well, I know where this video is going and that's that there are going to be crickets throughout his house. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that was the answer to that. Um, but between those two things, right, and especially that that scenario sort of describes it is if you have a leopard gecko, which most of the leopard gecko folks that we hear from don't have a, you know, in my own uh, personal soapbox is that there's a incentive to produce, to to get too large, that to not have a leopard gecko or even a handful or whatever that they get too big too fast. And that's why there's such a, a burnout in that um sort of captive uh, captive husbandry or, or collection of keepers, not the animals, but the keepers uh, who are interested in it is they get too big too fast. But um, Or that they feed a mealworms and then they become allergic to mealworms and stuff because they're exposed to 5,000 mealworms, which is a little bit easier because they're not going to pop all over your house. But, uh, you know, it's a le- little easier to contain, I suppose. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's there's no doubt as to why crested geckos are more popular broadly is yeah. – you don't have to deal with any of those sort of external factors, right, associated with that. Um, and I do I do think you make a great point that even more broadly from that, right, that's sort of the industrial aspect of it. I know Alan's a great guy. We, you know him really well. You know, you took us out there to his spot. He's a super nice guy. Um, that's sort of the industrial side of the whole thing. On the opposite end, you know, there's rice bean beetles and there's, black soldier fly larva and all, all these different, uh, on a, uh, a readily available, do, heck, dubia roaches, right? Um, that are deliverable to your door on a consistent basis in a way that they weren't a decade ago, let alone 25, 30 years ago, right? So I totally agree with you that the, the capacity to offer a much broader array to uh, all of our captives is there in a way that it wasn't before, right? The infrastructure is there to support it, whether it's the industrial side or the uh, sort of boutique, oh, you just want to, rather than only feeding your guanas crickets, you want to be able to give them a different thing for every day of the week or whatever, right? All all uh, insects. Uh, you could definitely do that now in a way that wasn't replicable beyond, obviously, you know, you had Bert Langerwerf and people of that same mindset who are uh, innovating and producing all their their own feeders, figuring out ways to make it work, develop cultivating them as uh, cultivars in cap- captivity that could be the the progenitors of that stuff. But uh, you know, that, it's a wholly different ballgame. So I agree there. That being said, um, you know, if we're just having a conversation on what's more produced now, you know, what are the things that were impossible before when you brought up this topic? The dragon rat stink, right? The Xenodermis, Javonicus. The, that was a thing that I don't think I, as someone who pokes around at a lot of uh, herp literature and things, I don't think I had any awareness of their existence until 20 years ago, 
right? Meaning that, yeah. like, those weren't even a thing of, like, oh, you, you stumble onto the Indonesian exporters page and there was the one – there's a striped mandarin rat snake on an Indonesian exporters page in 1997 that it's, like, looking at that, like, whoa, I'm sure that thing died. <laughs> Again, to another point, we'll, we'll come back to that. But where he said, oh, I'm, yeah, I kind of look at that picture and it already looks rough in the picture. And you're going, yeah. I think – that thing was probably dead within a couple of weeks of that picture being taken. But that the xenodermis weren't even on there. I had no awareness of their existence, let alone what they occur on Sumatra, where these exporters are. Um, there, there wasn't even there was so little awareness around it. You know, heck, you know, I know Keith is big, really loving his Lampanotus at this point, mm-hmm. the Borneo earless monitors, right? And through the late nineties, there the ones I was aware of, there had been three that had been found sort of in living, in recent living memory, you know, and Cameron had gotten them. The last one of them, they just stumbled upon when they were digging a latrine in, you know, rural <laughs> Borneo, uh, Sarawak or whatever, right? Where it was like, oh, okay. And they were incredibly expensive and they died very fast because, well, that isn't necessarily the way you would actually keep it. Again, to sort of the, the point of lack of information, as it turns out, oh, they love free-flowing streams if you, but they will estivate in deep, soil and that was digging a latrine that's how you find this one um and so if you that's what you're trying to replicate then you're sort of replicating what would be their estivation cycle rather than putting them into their active full you know adaptable yeah. cycle lack of in both you know that's kind of both things it's lack of animals lack of information lack of anything to compare it to uh, you know that that those two are and I think the xenodermis, in terms of the way that people are keeping lanthanotis now, actually do pretty well that way. But in terms of feeders, my understanding is they do well if you have the capacity to feed them, like, the appropriate size tadpoles. Okay? Mm-hmm. So we're right in that space of, like, it's not only tadpoles. It's tadpoles of the right size. So that has to be – that, as much as I mentioned, okay, well, we have the capacity now. There is the industry in place to support all these different feeders. The capacity on a weekly basis to have the tadpole of the right size, that's probably something you're going to have to take ownership of yourself, meaning yeah. whether that's going to be dart frogs or uh, uh, cricket frogs or whatever it is. Okay, but then do you have the capacity to have the right size all the time? Will they take it frozen? Do they need? Does it need to be live? Is it a question of really a movement more than it is, um, you know, scent or um, prey presentation or, or whatever, right? There's a whole million different factors there. As you said, uh, you have been going for a while, and I've gone for a while. Go ahead, any anything you like out of that, out of that. Uh. Yeah, no, I I I agree. Like, um, yeah, you might crack the code with xenodermis and and get them, you know, eating tadpoles that you're producing in captivity. But then, if you're going to go ahead and reproduce those and sell them to other people, you need a solution for them as well, other than saying, okay, now also set up a. <laughs> you know, a, a colony of cricket frogs or whatever species, you know, you find them to, to enjoy, you need to find a way to make them. And, and that's kind of what I, I talked to um, Ron about a little bit, because, you know, he's, he's kind of experimenting with keeping um, some of the Corallus and, and some of the uh, you know, green tree pythons and things um, changing our paradigm with those and keeping them differently, but you know, I was I I kind of thought, well, is this 
broadly applicable or, or people are going to be able to replicate your methods in their snake room in, you know, North Dakota or wherever they live. Um, is that going to be applicable or is this a Florida only thing, you know, keeping things outside? So that's kind of something that, and, and he was on top of that, you know, he's thinking, no, I, I will be able to, you know, figure this out and scale it and make sure that it's worked out before I just release my results and, and, progeny to to the public and so that's kind of the the challenge of of people who are are revolutionizing keeping i guess you could say um if you're able to support that for others and with some things like if it just requires a certain um food item that is readily available and you can commonly get at your grocery store or you know an asian food market or something then great you know that 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 could be um something that you know is is a little easier to implement but something like a tadpole specialist is, is a little different story. You know, you're, you're going to have to find a way to either freeze, you know, freeze tadpoles, get them to eat frozen thawed tadpoles, like you said, or maybe some kind of powder gel food that, that smells like tadpoles, you know, that has tadpole in it. So they recognize that as food. So, you know, there's, there might be creative options to get them to overcome that hurdle but that's kind of on the champion of the species to some extent and and maybe there are some that just you just can't overcome that hurdle easily enough that it takes hold and other people run with it because i don't know who wouldn't want to keep a xenodermis you know the dragon uh, snake <laughs> they're just really cool looking i mean even though they're not from australia i would consider keeping those things they're just awesome looking it just looks like some primitive, you know, dragon-like snake. Their name's perfect for them. So, and, you know, you see them at the shows and think, oh, that's pretty sweet. You know, uh, should I give it a shot? And then you're like, well, <laughs> you know, I'm not ready for it. I haven't done my research, but that's kind of maybe the imp impetus for some to go home, do the research, figure out what they need, set up a colony of frogs or whatever, you know, and, and experiment and try them out, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I think, um, if they're not imported, we don't have that option and there's no way to, to change that, you know, and, and if they're imported in low numbers, that's probably better than bringing in thousands of them just to sit and die and, and languish in captivity. I don't think a lot of these are, are good for the pet trade. And, and I would think that a pet store, well, you'd think that, but it's probably not true that pet stores would on the general part general side be wanting to sell animals that thrive that survive and a smart pet store probably can thrive and survive just off of feeder sales or tank sales or supply sales rather than the animal sales you know i think we have it in our mind a pet store makes its money off of pets which it probably doesn't you know i mean pet smart's a great example of that how many dogs does PetSmart sell? Zero. <laughs> you know, they, they might place some dogs from the pound or things, but they don't, they're not selling dogs. They're just selling dog supplies. And so I think a similar thing could, could be successful also for these importers or pet shops that rely on importers. I think if we shift that paradigm to say, we don't need to be supported by the import market. We can be supported by the captive bred market. You know, that might limit us a little bit and maybe we do sprinkle a little bit of imports in there. And, and I think that's maybe what's reflective of why we have less imports. But I think that champion of a species has to figure out how to make them widely available to the, to the other people. Um, yeah, I think that's probably where I should shut up, but <laughs> that's, that can be the challenge. <laughs>
For sure. And I I think you raise a great point that certainly what we're seeing uh, that's imported, uh, probably for a variety of reasons, some of it is probably um, the extent to which the demand is being, for reptiles as pets generally, is being satiated by what's being produced in captivity. I, I think that's not wrong to say that there is some replacement there, particularly at the sort of most basal levels where we're not talking about Obviously, most of the people that you and I are talking to on a regular basis about this are people who are really into reptiles and who are most interested then in the things that are considered to be or have been considered sort of through our time in herpetoculture to be rare and exclusive, right? That's sort of invariably where the mind goes. And some people, maybe if they're really commercially focused, their their mindset doesn't go that way. But for the most part, right, the the desire always goes to the, the thing that from when we first started was the unattainable item, right? That now maybe isn't quite so unattainable. But um, I do think you're right that generally the quality of imported stuff has gone up. I think there's been a streamlining of what's available in general, meaning that I do think there's less randomness. There's less sort of, oh, hey, what about this? Not that it doesn't happen, right? Matt Most, uh, invariably, he, he knows a couple of these folks and, and very, he's sending us pictures of like, what do you, what snake in the world do you even think this was? And it's, okay, this is the country that it came from. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, here's a fun, you know, here's a fun, uh, fun exercise for a fun puzzle for sure, where it's not, you know, and there aren't, well, it's sort of the betwixt and between where it's like, I would say generally there's not that many things that would fall into that categorization. At the same time, if you look at Marco Shea's book of snakes, that what there's is it five is it five thousand different that forms right. that are in yeah. there, or is it uh-huh. is that number? Or is that the number of total snakes? That sounds about you? right, right? And it's something yeah. like that might be total squamates. I yeah. Either way, right? Whatever it is, the answer is sixty percent of that book. Most people who are even really into snakes would say, what? In the, I have no conception that this thing exists, right? Um, so if that sort of puzzle is super interesting. Um, and, you could, again, we're right back where we started where it's like, okay, you could approach this from the – we know maybe theoretically where it's from. We can apply what do we know that's from there that seems to be from a, same, a similar ecological niche, white – what would we do if this turned up on your doorstep? The first answer is probably don't let it bite you. Um, but uh, I do think in general that your point is spot on, that uh, there has been a streamlining of what's available, but what has been available is better quality. They're not languishing um, for weeks before they're being sent out. They're not coming across on a boat, right? All these sort of infrastructure things are supporting what is available is probably much better situated to do well. Heck, Homoheropythons, right, where those were a thing that historically were considered to be essentially doomed from the start and not even with a clear cause where they just sort of dropped dead. Uh, you know, Chuck obviously has done super well. Shane has done super well. Plenty of people have done super well. Those those two, you know, that I'll especially call out here, the, the zoo itself, right, Oklahoma City. Um, but, uh, you know, those used to be sort of perceived as a lost cause despite being – a, uh, a scrub python, which are probably about as adaptable within, if you meet the absolute external ranges of the conditions where you could keep them in, those should be super adaptable and do really well. And the answer to me that's evidenced by all the success that's been had 
is that really was a function probably of there wasn't, as I understand it, there wasn't a consistent exporting station from there. So all of them inherently, meaning going back from they were described or perceived as a form by West, you know, by the U.S. herp hobby, let alone science, let alone indigenous folks, whatever, right? But perceived as a distinct item, maybe basically 30 years ago, that 30 years ago, without an exporting station in that area, the journey that those would take from the wild to sitting around to eventually catching a boat to go on six different flights to then come to the United States, just in terms of liver, kidney function, dehydration, all those things, is totally different than what you would see on an animal that was collected that that if you said hey i want to it might it will cost seven or eight times more but it is quite possibly that same number of times more likely to do well than it would have at the time that being said most that's probably (laughs) profits to people that aren't you know aren't the people actually collected and whatever but uh that's a whole different that's a whole different kettle of fish for us to go down but uh no i I think that you're on point there um the another note that you had made early on, just as a callback to this, I think it makes sense to be force feeding stuff in the coral snake context, right? Where we're, uh, I know Schmidt's had um, a couple folks on quite a few times to kind of talk through that process, producing the eastern coral snake and venom, all this stuff. Um, as someone who did not uh, grab an eastern coral snake uh, when I was in Florida in October, because I knew enough to to not put that uh, on the potential plate um because of those conversations it makes sense in that context at the same time if you were doing that every week with your animals and not even as a it's one thing right if you have an animal that won't start but if that's sort of the perpetual forever that we probably hit a limit where either you need to be able to accommodate what it wants to eat or that to my mind is probably something where there's some moral responsibility not to be trying to do that you have to go either fully in or fully out. Outside, absent the, you know, obviously there's a, a very, um, you know, um, uh, motivating reason to do it in that use case. And I totally understand that. I totally support it. But just as a private keeper, you know, obviously we're not in that space. Yeah. And, and I, I wonder too, like, I mean, a lot of these food sources we have are probably because there's a fishing fishing industry. You know, it's not because somebody's saying, well, we need to grow crickets for the reptile people. But, you know, that might have changed in the last 30, 40 years now. But um, I think the idea that more feeders, you know, some hornworms and things like that may be uh, available just specifically for reptile needs, particularly the roach species or some of the, the mealworms, ophobas, like you mentioned, bird langworth. Um, you know, we've, we've gotten good at uh, producing some of these things. I mean, I found out just completely by accident that if you throw some mealworms in your roach bin because you don't have anywhere else to put them, they thrive in there and they produce. And I've got, you know, mealworms and roaches now in the same container and, and I can offer, you know, a little bit more variety to my, to my animals. And they, they're basically just perpetual. As long as you throw some green stuff in there every once in a while and keep a bowl of brand, they're, they're pretty easy bulletproof things to, to reproduce. So that's kind of been a game changer with my lizard keeping because, uh, Either I didn't have the money to order the crickets on a regular basis or I didn't want to spend that money or I was ordering too many and half of them would die. So I'd get disillusioned with that or I've looked for other alternative sources and and they haven't worked out so well. You know, I 
I tried those uh, Red Runners, and it seemed like they had some kind of sticky web substance coming out of them, and, and the lizards didn't seem to like them. Like, when I'd put them in there, they'd eat one or two, and then they'd kind of say, okay, that's enough, I can't eat this. And I think there are some species that may not uh, have that same, you know, they, they don't care what it tastes like, you know, they'll eat whatever. I, I think I heard, it might have been on Project Herpticulture again, they were talking about the mealworm beetles that most stuff will not touch those but certain species just went right after them and didn't couldn't give a crap you know um but so you know there's there's a little bit of um experimentation i think when it comes to establishing a species because you might find like oh they love this food item and and they prefer this food item to other things and that could also be a bad thing, but maybe that's kind of the secret of getting them started is having this commercially available insect that nobody had tried before or something. You know, I don't know. But um, the other the other side of that is uh, um, if, you know, if, if those those things are are available and you're and you're finding the thing that, they, that helps them survive, um, you know, that that's critical. Right. You need to find those those critical parts of their natural history. I, I think one of my favorite examples, and, and you put me onto this and we've talked about this uh, before is that uh, Peter Neckis, uh, Neckis uh, interview on the chameleon Academy podcast. And, and I wonder how many reptile species this could apply to, you know, I, I think about this in the context of Draco and that was kind of what, you know, that species that, that started this whole thing was, you know, thinking about all the Draco that are imported and then just are basically doomed to to die in captivity, at least historically. And I know that uh, recently um, there was some success with these. I oh gosh, I the name is failing me now. Help me out. <laughs> um, the uh, so oh, Frank, Frank Payne, Frank and then there was Payne, someone else yeah. who was on Project Herpeticulture. Okay, someone else was on there who I think he's in Ohio or something who has done well with them as well. And I, I think ultimately I don't, I don't know that uh, Frank's are still going. I think he might've abandoned that project and, and it proved to be difficult, but maybe it's something like that where they get their moisture from a fogger or, and that's the only way to get them to, to get moisture. It's similar to what Peter Neckus was saying, but, and, and, you know, so things like that, when we have paradigm shifts or, or changes in our understanding of how certain things happen, um, yeah, that could be a game changer for these things. Maybe that's all they need to survive, or maybe the newer, newer crop that are coming in or coming in under better conditions aren't quite so emaciated. Or I, I do think there are some species that just can't tolerate that, sitting in a box or sitting in a, you know, in a import facility or export facility waiting to, and, and just not being fed or not being housed properly. I think they just can't bounce back from that. And I think a lot of the early work with green trees was kind of like that intensive care. You know, you got to keep them over water or constantly hydrated or something like that. So, or, or they just die. And so then we kind of said, Oh, that's how you, take care of them you know you've got to keep them over you know it's kind of that uh, idea of somebody in in the critical care unit at the hospital is not going to receive the same care as you have day to day you know it's it's intensive care it's you know not meant to be long term and i think 
sometimes we get confused by that because the methods needed to rescue an emaciated import are much different than the the day-to-day care of one of their captive bred offspring should we be that lucky so you know those kind of things could um, play into this as well and maybe the the long-term intensive care could actually be damaging to the animal or, you know, make them fail to thrive in some instances. So, you know, it's, it's a really kind of a difficult thing and it requires a lot of forethought. And I think that's why it's just not done very often. You know, we want to, we want a care guide, we want a care sheet, we want something to tell us what to do. We don't want to try to figure it out by ourselves and, and spend the money and risk losing a lot of things. And I think uh, Ron alluded to that where, with the anoles, you know, he struggled to find, once he figured out kind of, oh, they need this to lay their eggs in. Then he had no problem getting eggs and hatching eggs, you know, but before that it was a struggle. It was kind of hard. Um, so there's, there's different things that can really, um, you know, once you crack the code, then all of a sudden they're easy. And I, I guess that's the, the problem is, you know, it's always, you know, hindsight is, <laughs> Uh, 2020, you know, you, you, uh, it's a lot easier to say, well, well, yeah, of course they needed that. You know, who would have not have thought of that? Although they went for 30 years with nobody thinking of that, you know, it's, it's so much easier to say on the, on the other side, well, of course that's, that's all they needed, (laughs) but you know, well, you didn't crack the code and you know, maybe there's, so there, there could be a lot of species out there that just need that aha moment. I'm going to try this and have a, have a good enough sample size and show that, you know, oh, that did work or nope, it didn't work. And I'm going to, you know, put it on my website or I'm going to put it on, you know, a, a podcast so people can hear down the road. Okay. If you're trying this species, you know, maybe don't try this or this didn't work for me in this situation, you know, so all these, all this uh, sharing of information is is really useful. Um, of course, social media makes that difficult in a lot of ways. You know, it's hard to have a permanent record of things like this, unless you do put it on a website or something, you know, and, and people just don't go to that effort a lot of times. It's, and I, I'm not exempt from that either. I don't have a lot of my failings on, on my website either. So I can't really criticize anybody for that, but that's kind of what's needed if we're going to champion certain things. Right. And even then some of that, uh, as much as both you and I have learned from different websites that have existed and the internet archive that exists, uh, archive.org is, uh, really cool, right. In terms of looking back on both sites that we're familiar with and those that we didn't see at the time or only saw later or whatever, but it's still transitory, right? I mean, I think of, um, Rico's website that had so much information, right. And it actually, uh, Darlene and, whomever had maintained it for a long time as it was, but uh, it's gone now. And you can find it on the Internet Archive, and it mostly works, right? Sometimes with the way people were doing pictures, uh, God help you if you had photo bucket and whatever. But, um, you know, for the most part, some of of the the bare bones of that, at least somewhere between bare bones and full body are are still visible. But uh, even that is, I mean, heck, it's, sort of is amazing to me, right, as to bring it all back to the the front end of this is, you know, I was able to order um, online and receive and now reading a pamphlet, not even, you know, a four-page newsletter from the Staten Island Zoo from more than 60 years ago and be reading it today, 
right? That's yeah. that's very available in a way that a website that was designed five years ago, if it's someone who then got out two years ago, is probably already gone. So the permanence of that is um, really is pretty amazing, you know. So. Uh, and then you have people, folks like Eric, right, who is printing out websites and, you know, has his binder of all the different, yeah. you know, things that were of interest and all that. So um, to some extent, this was the last point that I had, you know, sort of as we'd gone through this. And it, it's the slightly different sphere of this, right? So when we're talking about Eric having the binder, that's a, uh, a cost of time, right, mm-hmm. time and effort. The thing, the limiting factor that I see for a lot of these species is really the the cost, be it the time and effort or actual the, the financial to do it, right? So if we're talking, mm-hmm. as I'd started with, with the granodensis that has little hatchlings, their inherent uh, desire is to watch for the animal that's asleep at night so they can inch up on it and then go for it. Um, an old, invasive brown anoles shipped from Florida are readily available to a quality that didn't exist a decade ago. That is I, I'm willing to stand on that as a fact, right? Yeah. So that 10 years ago, there was one or two sources and they're exactly what you're talking about of like, these were brought, it were collected and brought in here sometime, you know, between six months and, you know, today and literally they'd be shipped and half of them be dead in the bag, which means yeah. it's not that they died from having the shipping process. It's that they had been, uh, they had achieved that point where that was the culmination, right? Because I can say that because then now nowadays you have folks who go collect them to order and they get shipped out and literally they're all alive and look awesome when they yeah. come in. Yeah. I've had it, the stark contrast between the initial sort of presentation of that and the, you know, the, the new iteration. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that is important there, really, not that the the ones that were half dead, you know, where half of them were dead, not even that they were all half dead, half of them were dead. Um, the cost isn't that dramatically different. But in either instance, we're talking about an overnight FedEx box, you know, from halfway across the country, plus the cost, actually, the effort to go into that. So we're talking about those are, you know, the price I'm paying for those after you factor in all that is more than someone's paying for a medium or large rat at this point, and people are certainly complaining about that. Um, and that's, you know, a week on any of those things that are eating that. So um, I think there's a cost to it, be it something where you – and even then, right, now in the same way I mentioned a while ago, with how you get a box of crickets, now you got a box of 50 and old. Now you really are talking about setting up – a cage or two or whatever with planted vivariums and then you're catching them out of there. You're trying not to have them shoot out the gap and all, all this stuff. All of that is cost in both money and time and effort. Um, and so I, it's in terms of mainstream popularity, mainstream availability, like certain, the answer is certainly that there's someone out there for all these things that will go to whatever length. I mean, shoot as, uh, uh, Benjamin, uh, no, Thomas Price, right? Benjamin yeah. Bucks in Stolen World, who was mm-hmm. the fellow. I, so I had seen him back in Daytona, the, the Daytona issue that's described in the book. I was there with Tom um, yeah. Butterbean, the character from the whole of this crazy tattooed German guy who tattoos, you know, on the bottom of his feet and problematic stuff and all, all this stuff. Oh, I I was there. I, I saw that, that whole scene. So yeah. that makes the, that, portion of the book extra interesting yeah, but uh you know what he was instrumental in euromastics tomasai bitis parviacula mm-hmm. euromastics princeps 
uh, I believe, um, all those things. So at some point between when the book came out and a handful of years ago, because so he's on Facebook, we're, but we're no longer friends, um, apparently. Um, I remember seeing him, right, seeing him on there, and he had the Galapagos marine iguanas that eat the algae off oh of goodness. the rocks. Yeah. Now, talk about an illegal as hell, for sure. <laughs> right. But the the level of care and and work, yeah. right, of saying like, okay, the the level of care, work, expense, uh, ignoring the legality or illegality of that, that it's like to have a pair of Galapagos marine, marine iguanas that mm-hmm. need to be maintained in a, in a uh, saltwater environment. Essentially, it's a saltwater fish tank, and now you have iguanas that need to eat the algae off the rock, right? Uh-huh. Talk about yeah. uh, how extreme can you get? <laughs> it's probably the same amount of cost and effort and work as it is to have you know, a 2,000 square foot building of colubrids or whatever, yeah, right? To, right? Those are right. the equivalent uh, when you equate all those things, right? Um, but that to me is sort of the the prototype when we're having this conversation of like, there's there's a person for everything, but it, sure. as you said, champions of the species and champion championing not only in terms of both figuring out, doing it, making them available, but in terms of making a way for it to be um, within the grasp of other people that are out there in the world, you know, for you to sell those offspring to and all that. Um, that's, that really is the, the crux of the problem yeah. that, you know, we're talking about today. Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, I, <laughs> I will, I will definitely concede that <laughs> there are some species that should not be collected and sold in herpticulture and, and marine iguanas are probably the best example of that. You know, there's, there's probably very few people that could keep those, but you know, not to say that it's impossible. And I, and I, you know, I don't know that if there are any in like zoos or, or private hands that maybe could keep them like, you know, kind of like a T turtle survival Alliance type organization. Right. TSA. Um, yeah. yeah. Cause I, I, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, they have a monopoly on keeping tortoises and turtles correctly, but I, I'm pretty sure they do it better than, than probably 99.9% of, you know, keepers out there. Um, and they have a lot of knowledge contained in that group and, and they're going to succeed, uh, and they have the drive and means to do so. So, you know, there's definitely things like that to consider and, and a marine iguana. I I was looking at the uh, Houston Zoo website. My daughter's in Houston right now, and she was talking about maybe going to the zoo. So I was going to see what they had there. And they have a Galapagos uh, exhibit. And in the in the map, it talks about an area for the tortoises and the iguanas. And I'm not sure because they have like a sea lion environment. And uh, I was thinking wouldn't that be cool if a zoo displayed some marine iguanas and had kind of like an insurance population, if they could keep them successfully outside of the Galapagos in case, you know, there's some volcano or something that wipes out the marine iguana population on a certain Island. I don't know, <laughs> but, um, or the sea levels rise and they all drown or, you know, it's it, who, who, who's to say what could potentially occur, but you know, if there was a way to have, uh, even a zoo, you know, I think that would fall into this discussion that there should be some, some place that, you know, there shouldn't be an animal that nobody can keep anywhere. You know, there should be maybe a zoo or something that could potentially have a, have an insurance population or, or 
find the way to to make things work for for certain. And I think Hellbenders are a great example of that, where Hellbenders were very threatened in the wild, and now they're doing fantastic um, in these captive rearing <laughs> scenarios in zoos. <coughs> Excuse me, and uh, you know they're releasing them back into nature by the hundreds or maybe even thousands um, in certain areas. So, you know, those kind of things are encouraging. And, and I think, you know, just to say, well, you know, there's, there's no hope for the hellbender. No, they, they went out and figured out how to keep and breed them in, in a captive setting. And I think, you know, that could potentially be something that a com a, a regular keeper could do. You know, they might be able to, successfully care for a hellbender and i'm sure there's a lot of herpers out there that would love the chance to keep a hellbender <laughs> you know that kind of thing so i i guess legality aside like you said you know i think there's somebody that could probably do that but but whether or not that's for broad application in the herpetocultural market is another question altogether <clears throat> man something's down the wrong pipe but um, you know, I, I think that all falls into it. You know, if you have enough passion, enough drive and enough and, and the means to do so, you can probably make anything work. You know, if you, uh, of course, marine iguanas would be on an exponential level harder than just about anything else, but there's probably somebody that could make it work and do it and breed marine iguanas and have a whole pen full or something. I don't know. And find a way to feed them what they need, but that would be definitely a, a, a next next level challenge <laughs> to do so. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. This is uh, a, a, a definitely a fun topic to think about. And I trying to think if there were any other um, t points that I had that I wanted to bring up, but I think we covered all, I covered all mine. Did you get all yours out there? I think the only thing I had was, Early on when we were talking about this, there was sort of the question of does sending a message, meaning uh, a refusal to buy these things, particularly in the import context, does that work? And I think the answer, particularly in the new sort of streamlined universe where there isn't nearly as uh, much coming and not from nearly as many sources, I think the answer is yes. Like I've even seen that with a couple of specific examples. Like I know that uh, – Essentially, Cameron refused to buy uh, Erangia carpets over a certain size, whether it was, you know, when you get those sort of two and a half, three footers, something like beyond that, he didn't want them. He wouldn't purchase them. So they stopped sending them uh, with a Lafe subradiata. So the, um, not the radiated retinic, but the, a, a, an insular form rather than being sort of the mainland in, into the insular um, retinic that, came in probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them came in. The ones that I had actually came from the Tula Exoterium, were imported in the in 2006, 2007, something like that. Obviously, they had gotten some um, from a source, so someone was shipping them out. But those were a thing that they're generally very much a rat snake connoisseur who's interested in the thing for the thing, not because of... Um, they're either pleasantness, pleasant disposition, or beautiful color, or any of these, you know, any of these other factors that would make them appealing. Um, those were available and legal to be shipped, but they weren't shipped because there w it was recognition of the lack of market for that. So I think in the streamlined marketplace, there's even more capacity 
to, as you said, sort of, and Eric always says, sort of vote with your dollar and a lack of uh, take up of those things will, especially in our new um, state, will result in less of that stuff, which is almost certainly a good thing, right? So there's the, the, the down, when I say that, right, that's the good, theoretical good thing for the animals in the wild. The downside of that is that it's not sort of feeding the populace, so to speak, with a limited take. So who knows, does that result in deforestation? The cosmic octopus, the overcomplexity of everything, <laughs> right? The, yeah, the right. multidimensionality of everything that there <laughs> is. But uh, in a in a very, the, the most basic way, we would say like, oh, that's a good thing that there aren't these sort of extraneous items that there isn't a market for being imported. If we followed all of the um, roots back to the, or, you know, roots back to the tree or whatever, maybe it's more complicated than that. So the answer certainly is, but in the most basal way, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. I, there was, there was one other thing that, that occurred to me as well is, um, as we, uh, you know, I think a lot of keepers are afraid to compete with imports because one imports come in at much lower prices than they can probably reproduce them for, and uh, so, you know, trying to compete with those prices can be problematic. I I have seen kind of a, a change a little bit where people offering captive bred offspring, they're actually selling their offspring at, you know, much higher prices than an import. But people are willing to pay the extra money to have, you know, lower risk and, and things like that. And I would hope that people producing some of these uh, anybody producing animals is is happy and willing to maybe replace something if if it dies within a certain amount of time or things like that. You know, if you're a captive breeder, um, usually you're pretty good about wanting to help out the person that's getting the animal to succeed. Now that doesn't exist with an import because you're buying it from a pet store or from an exporter, or importer, or whatever, and so you're not really getting that. Uh, personalized uh, help and, and support system, I guess. They don't care whether you succeed or not because then you're going to come back to them and buy another animal, you know, if, if that first animal dies. But um, so I think, um, you know, we never know when something's not going to be imported anymore. And so if there's a, a, a commonly available animal that you think is cool and that you're just afraid to compete with import prices, don't, don't be afraid. I think that's... Uh, something, you know, a message I want to put out there is like, go ahead and work with that animal, work with what you love and don't let some kind of, you know, pyramid scheme idea of, I, I need to make money off of this influence that decision. Because if you can do well with a species, you're probably going to make enough money to at least feed it, if not more. Um, again, you know, kind of referring back to the, the interview that prompted this discussion, um, with Jay on uh, where he was talking about, you know, red-eyed tree frogs. He said you could, you know, if, if they're not imported or even if they are, you could easily make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year just breeding, you know, one species of frog and, and you know, that kind of thing. And so I think maybe from the aspect of, you know, should should certain species be imported regularly if they're being captive bred at high numbers then the answer is probably no um you know should should any animal be imported in huge numbers that uh, you know I, I guess we need to think about the sustainability but there's probably another resounding no that we don't need to import you know millions of animals at cheap 
rock bottom prices kind of thing, you know, cause that just leads to the idea that they're not, that they're worthless or they're a garbage animal or those kind of phrases that have been floated around. Cause most animal, most reptiles, I mean, we're in this because reptiles are cool and there's a, there's a million different, well, not a million, but there's several hundreds or thousands of really cool species out there that we could potentially keep and price shouldn't be factored into that. If you think it's cool and it's worth five bucks, hey, that's great. If it, if you think it's cool and it's worth 5,000 bucks, hey, that's great. You know, once you get it in your own hands, you can do with whatever you want with it and sell it for whatever price you think you need to, you know, that kind of thing. But the fact is that some of these uh, imported animals disappear and then they rapidly disappear from the hobby because nobody had the forethought to say, what if they aren't imported anymore? I really like these. I want these to be available to to my children or my children's children or whatever, you know, so I'm going to go through the effort of establishing these and, and making sure that they're available for many years to come, even if they're not allowed to be exported from their country of origin. So just another kind of pitch for that mindset, you know, keep that in mind that they might not be imported anymore. I think, uh, what the, monkey-tailed skinks. They were imported. They were, you know, $100 pet store animal. And then all of a sudden they stopped and they went to a $1,000 animal, you know, because they were rare and people realized how cool they were when they weren't in every pet store, I guess. They went, hey, where are those really cool skinks? I never bought because they were only $100. (laughs) And I didn't want to compete with import prices or whatever. But And then they kind of had a resurgence where they were imported again and those prices fell a bit, but they were still, you know, a couple hundred dollars or, uh, to, to get them from the importers. And, and so, you know, that changed pretty quickly and you can't predict it. So you might as well establish stuff when there is an influx of fresh blood, or if you get some kind of inkling that something's going to stop or, you know, or you just really like that species. So. I think Tokay geckos are a really nice example of that. And granted, you know, maybe the morphs or whatever help a little bit with that. But I think people just genuinely like Tokay geckos. And the imports are pretty, can be pretty uh, feisty and nasty and, and bitey. And whereas the captive bred animals can be sweet and, you know, just handleable and, and great. So I guess it just depends on a lot of different things. But work with what you love, not because it's worth some perceived dollar amount. <laughs> I think I'll I'll end with that. <laughs> Anything else to add? Yeah, well, Abby, that's that's fabulous. I'm 100 percent aligned there. Yeah. Or less. I didn't catch that. You kind of broke up, but <laughs> I think I think we're at the end. So if if I got it correct there. Oh um, no, I. Yeah, no, I was just saying, yeah, work with what you love. So that that's yeah. literally it. Gotcha. Cool. Well, um, hopefully, you know, this has been a helpful discussion and, and got some ideas from it. And hopefully you'll be motivated to get out there and get that uh, species you've always loved, but just thought it was too cheap to bother with and <laughs> work with work with something uh, cool for uh, to to hopefully potentially down the road uh, improve the situation with imports. <laughs> um, any, any cool, uh, reptile news or, or, uh, happenings in the herpeticultural world? 
I saw on Instagram a couple of posts. Talking about finding black pine. I can hear you fine. Okay, I got you back. Can you hear me? Okay, maybe we just cut it off. With the, yeah, yeah, my thing's starting to get fussy. I don't know. No worries. They're oh, watching yeah, something I, around. I heard you talking about uh, black pines and uh, finding finding them in the wild. Yeah. Some, some recent uh, activity there. Yeah, maybe we'll save it for next time. We'll save it for next week. I can oh. find the the link and don't have to try and find it or whatever. So we can just have Eric cut it at the end. And... Yeah, that works. Um, well, I'll, I'll throw out the kind of the the end stuff then. Well, I mean, I I, I was looking looking at some of the reptile news. It was kind of a little bit of dire stuff coming out uh, right now, but there was some indication that one in five reptile species is in, endangered um, of extinction or, uh, you know, from either habitat loss or from climate change and things like that. And then the other one that was uh, some lizards are being born old, which was kind of an interesting way to put it that, you know, that the hotter temperatures and things that the nests are exposed to is, is kind of reducing their, their lifespan or something, if I understood that correctly, but kind of maybe not the most exciting <laughs> things out there, but uh, something to be aware of, and that could shape things. I There was another story about how um, rapid speciation of reptiles has occurred during periods of uh, global uh, warming or, or warming temperatures, and so, you know, I guess it's kind of the adapter perish type attitude that sometimes this earth takes and <laughs> we're accelerating that clearly, but uh, you know, the fact that hopefully things can adapt and, and survive or change so they can, they can uh, persist, but kind of uh, different times we're living in, I guess. <laughs> and uh, something, something interesting, I guess, to, to think about. Um yeah, I guess we'll uh, thank uh, Eric and and the crew, Owen, and and for for uh, you know hosting the website or not the website, <laughs> the podcast, and uh, appreciate their support. And hopefully, uh, um, Eric's doing well and and uh, bounce back from some of the challenges he's faced lately. But we really appreciate his efforts in keeping this uh, going. And yes leave with that check out morelia pythons radio um, facebook instagram all the socials their website all that good stuff and and listen to npr as well um but thanks for listening to reptile reptile fight club and we'll uh, catch you again next time thanks fight club.